Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, while you turn there, just a word again of thanks to Dr. Aiken for his uh, friendship and partnership in the gospel. Such an honor to be back here on campus. Uh, it's a great honor to, to be with pastors today. I used to be very critical of pastors until I became one, and, and now I just want to hug them. So uh, maybe, maybe later, if, if the teaching's not good, I can give you a hug um, and, and encourage you in that way. Uh, I, I'm not here full-time anymore, but I still work for Dr. Aiken because I'm part of this commentary series, and he keeps giving me volumes to write. I thought I was finished until Platt decided not to do Romans, and so now I'm in the middle of Romans. And the reason I did Acts is because Platt didn't want to do Acts. He, he signed a contract with Acts. And so I'm basically doing whatever David doesn't want to do uh, with, with his life. And, um, and that's really how this commentary thing got started. This was Dr. Aiken's idea. Um, I remember flying here and, and Nate picking me up at the airport. And he said, I'm very, very excited about this commentary series you guys are doing. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, your dad's, or dad said that you and him and Platt are going to edit a commentary series. I said, well, the only thing I know is he called me. I was living in Mississippi at the time and said, what books have you preached through? And I rattled off some books and he says, okay, that's helpful. And then I got here and those are the books I'm assigned to write in this commentary series. <laughs> and he, uh, and I said, I know how this is going to work. Uh, you're going to give it to Southern Baptist street cred. Platt's going to make it sell and I'm going to do all the work. I, I know. <laughs> I know my role very well in this series, okay? Uh, but I'm really happy to be in that lane. I, I don't complain. It has been a great honor. Writing commentaries are very, very challenging, also very, very edifying. And so um, I had to go back through Acts because it's been a while since we preached through Acts uh, to remember what I actually said about it. So uh, Acts 17 is uh, one of these classic texts, uh, verses 16 to 34, as Paul is in Athens uh, engaging uh, the Athenians with the gospel and by observing how Paul evangelized this influential city, we find some important lessons about how we should engage unbelievers today. And so that's the big idea. I want us to draw some evangelistic lessons from Paul's visit to Athens. And so let me read the text and we'll pray. I'll read just the first uh, five or six verses here. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You're bringing some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, I pray right now you would use me to encourage and equip your saints for the work of ministry. That we would be useful to the master, our king, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. 
Well, as you read the book of Acts, one of the things that's very striking is the evangelist, not only the evangelistic tenacity of the Apostle Paul, but the evangelistic versatility of the Apostle Paul. He is able to go in a, a wide range of contexts, as you see in this text, and, and preach the gospel. It reminds me a little bit about the pitcher uh, in the MLB named Pat Vendetti. I don't know if you're familiar with Vendetti or not, but he is a switch pitcher. He throws both right hand and left hand. And while we've had switch hitters for years in baseball, he is the first switch pitcher in about 135 years. He has a glove that he can just take off and throw right in mid-inning with, with another hand. In fact, the Giants were looking for a, a, both a right-handed and left-handed relief pitcher in the offseason, and they said, we'll just take him. One sports reporter got very excited, and he declared, he's amphibious. And I think he meant ambidextrous. Um, but what Paul, no one really accused announcers of being really smart. Uh, Paul was this ambidextrous evangelist, if you will. He, he was able to throw these gospel strikes in the synagogue to the Jews and to the devout persons. And he was able to go into the marketplace and into the places uh, of the philosophers and also engage them faithfully and effectively. So there's a lot to learn from uh, the apostle regarding evangelism. Now, Athens, I don't have to tell you, was a place with great history. Uh, famous playwrights, historians, medical geniuses, philosophers, artists, sculptors, once called Athens home. And in Paul's day, though the, the golden age of Athens, the fifth century, had gone, it was still a beautiful, influential, and intellectual city. And in every Greek city, the highest point of elevation housed a temple to some god or goddess, the, the patron god of the city. These were the high cities. That's what Acropolis means, a high city. And at the top of this high city, this highest point of elevation would be a god or goddess, and Athens was no different. Uh, the great goddess Athena stood inside the Parthenon. And about 50 yards away from the Parthenon was this little hill. And on this hill stood another temple to the Greek god of, of war, Ares, which corresponded to the Roman god of war, Mars, hence the name the Areopagus, or Mars Hill. Now, I've had the privilege of being in Athens. It's been a while, just a couple of pictures to give you just a little feel of what it's like. There's the great uh, theater that still sits uh, there in the city. Here is the Acropolis from Mars Hill. Um, it was under a bit of renovation. It's a bit old. Uh, the <laughs> next picture shows the look down from the Acropolis to Mars Hill and to the city. Uh, there is me, and there is the inscription actually in Greek with Acts chapter 17 on it. Uh, and there I am reading the text uh, in 2004. That's when that picture was taken uh, during the Olympics. My haircut has not changed uh, in 15 years, as you can tell, um, nor has the gospel. Um, now, as we... <laughs> As we think about Paul in Athens, what I want you to think about with me uh, this morning is what Paul saw, what Paul felt, what Paul, where, where Paul went, and what Paul said. So what he saw, what he felt, where he went, and what he said. And I think the questions that we have and the challenges that we have, we see Paul dealing with them. How do we engage a religious a pluralistic society, a skeptical society, a secular society? How do you engage intellectual yet biblically illiterate people, which is all around our area? 
Donnie and I were on a plane recently, and he was talking to a gal who was very educated, who had never heard, the book, heard of the book of Job, who didn't know the story of the Bible. And so we, we encounter this all the time. So let's see what he sees. Let's feel what he feels. Let's go where he goes, and let's say what he says. Now, first, what he saw. First two, quickly. You notice here that it says, as Paul was waiting for them. So if you just jump up to chapter 17, verse 13, you see what happens is Paul had been in Berea, and uh, the agitators came to, to uh, run Paul out. And in so doing, uh, they take Paul from Berea down to Athens. And so Paul's not on... Uh, uh, like a planned mission trip, at least humanly speaking. He didn't really plan to go to Athens. And yet Paul is not uh, uh, a missionary only on a mission trip. He's always a missionary. And so he's, he's in Athens, and he's just waiting on his pals to join him in Athens. And what gets his attention in Athens at first is not the beauty of the city. It's the idols of the city. This is what he sees. One writer said it was easier to find a god in Athens than a person. This marketplace was lined with idols. So the ESV says here that it was, that the, it was full of idols. You could render it under idols, smothered in idols. You see, Paul viewed the city differently than a typical tourist view, viewed the city of Athens because Paul looks at this city Christianly. And that's very important for us to remember. When you become a Christian, you get a different worldview, don't you? We wear different glasses than the rest of the world. We may enjoy many of the same things the world enjoys, but we enjoy them differently. We see them differently, right? We, we understand the purpose underneath them, so we can enjoy the arts, but we view the arts Christianly. We, 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 we can enjoy music, but we listen to it differently. We think about sports and can enjoy it, but we think about it differently. We, we see the world in light of God's revelation. We see it in, in view of, of what he has revealed about himself, about his son, about the story of the Bible. We view the world in light of creation, fall, redemption, new creation. And so we can't go around and not see things and feel a certain way. We just, we just don't live in this life and, uh, and, and uh, see things the same way a non-Christian does. We worship the God of revelation, not the God of our imagination. And because he has revealed himself and revealed his ways to us, it affects literally everything we do and everything we see. So do you see idolatry? That would be a, a, a first step here in learning from Paul, I think, on evangelism. We don't see cities immersed necessarily in idols, at least in the States, though you will in other countries. But idolatry is present everywhere. Chesterton said, when man ceases to worship God, he, doesn't, he does not worship nothing, he worships everything. Because we are, as Freud said, incurably religious. Um, that is, anywhere you go around the world, you'll find people worshiping all manner of things. We're worshipers. Even atheists are suppressing the truth, Paul says. And so what does Paul do then? What does he feel when he sees this? How does he react? Does Paul just sort of react with casual indifference as he sees idolatry? Does he just say, well, you guys, you do you. Stay in your lane, bro. No, he feels something. So look what he feels. As he sees the idols, it says that he was provoked. He was provoked within him because he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, this is a word that's, that's uh, throughout the Old Testament to describe God's feeling about Israel's idolatry. 
They provoked the Lord to anger, we read regularly throughout the Old Testament because of their, 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 their idolatry. And so Paul has a certain anger, a certain righteous indignation. He has a zeal for God's glory, doesn't he? He wants Jesus to be worshipped in Athens. He's, he has the heart of the psalmist in Psalm 67, doesn't he? Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. We believe that Jesus is worthy of worship from every tribe and tongue. So there, there is that sense of zeal. But I, I would also argue by, by the way Paul interacts with the Athenians that he also shares a certain love for them. And that too is present in the Old Testament when the Lord was provoked to anger. The reason he was provoked to anger is because he loved them. He had chosen them. He had placed his affection on them. And so Paul's feeling is a zeal both for the glory of God and a broken-hearted compassion for people. And that, that compassion is played out by the way Paul warmly, respectfully engages the Athenians. He doesn't take a sledgehammer to the idols, does he? No. It requires patience and grace and love to be able to address people the way Paul does. And so I would argue right here is the real problem with most of us when it comes to evangelism in the heart. Many Christians simply don't care. You don't get that from Paul. He's wandering around the city and he is provoked. He is provoked. He's zealous for God's glory. He's compassionate for people. And this causes him to go somewhere and to say something. And I would argue, if you have this heart, we, we need not only the theology of Paul, we need his heart, don't we? You want to be like Paul, you have to share his heart, not just his teaching. So where does he go? Three places are mentioned, uh, or maybe two, two and a half, two B. He goes to the synagogue, he goes to the marketplace, and in the marketplace, he addresses both people who just happen to be there, and then he addresses the skeptics, the, these philosophers in particular. And again, you see the great range in evangelism that Paul has. And this is also very important for us as we think about evangelism because we live in a nation right here of great spiritual diversity, don't we? You may encounter some people in certain parts of the nation that have absolutely no knowledge of the Bible. I mean, smart people. No knowledge of the, of the Christian worldview. But you might also go into other places where... all. Everybody seems to have an understanding of the faith. Or you might live in a place like Raleigh where you'll find both extremes present. People who are very churched and internationals, perhaps college students, certain pockets of our city are very unreached and, and people have no basic understanding of the gospel. One writer said that when ministering to university students, he finds an increasing number of students, college students, that don't even know the Bible has two testaments. That sounds bizarre to us, but it's true. And so what do, you, what do you do? How do you engage people who have no understanding of the truth? What does pre-evangelism look like? And how do you address the religious types who are very religious but not Christians? D.A. Carson illustrated this, this diversity in America with two recent seminary graduates. He said one planted a church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where the student said it took him a whole year before he met someone who would not confess to being a Christian. Another church planter planted a church in Washington, D.C., and he found things to be totally different. He did a little survey to incite a conversation, and the, the planter asked 
the people to do a word association activity where you connected one word in this column with the word in this column and the word Christian, the most, uh, the number one connection with that word was the word bigot. So a hostility to the gospel, a hostility to Christianity, or you got another context. So you might say one had a synagogue ministry and one had a marketplace ministry. So what does Paul do in these locations? Well, first of all, notice here in the synagogue, it says that um, he, he, he engaged the devout persons and the Jews. Now, there's not a lot of uh, exposition in this particular paragraph about what Paul did in the synagogue, but we know from the book of Acts what he did, right? We know if you just look over in, in Thessalonica, it says that Paul, in addressing the, the Jews, uh, this is uh, chapter 17, verse 2, as was his custom. So this was Paul's pattern. He would go into these synagogues first, and what did he do in the synagogues? He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So that's what Paul did. He took the Old Testament and he pointed people to Jesus. And he did it over and over and over in the synagogue, and he didn't always get a good response, did he? Or he got a response, not, it, sometimes it hurt. Uh, but there he was, boldly, preaching the Messiah. Now, this should go without saying, but if you are in a churchy setting, if you teach a class in a church, if you preach in a church, if you do anything in the context of a, perhaps a Christian camp, it sounds very obvious, but make sure you're preaching the gospel explicitly every week. Don't assume that church attenders are family members. You're going to have all sorts of people that show up to a church regularly and not be a Christian. And so what they have to hear is the gospel. Make it your number one priority in youth ministry, your number one priority as a children's worker, your number, pri number one priority as a volunteer. Many religious people aren't Christians. When I was pastoring in Mississippi one time, there was an older gentleman who was handing out bulletins. I think he was 71 years old. And I had preached on John 3, you must be born again. And he came up, he met me later that week, and he said, I had never heard that. And... Uh, the Lord brought him to faith. I baptized him. And he said when he was a little kid, the pastor said, hey, son, isn't it about time for you to join the church? And he joined the church but was never regenerate. Well, I don't want to exaggerate, but I think that, that, that idea, that problem is very pervasive. A lot of people who just culturally attend meetings and do their traditional thing, but they've not been born again. So let's preach the gospel there. Well, that's what he does in the synagogue. What does he do in the marketplace? Well, he goes into this agora. This is where all the stuff happened there in Athens. This is where Paul goes with his faith. He doesn't start a riot. He starts a conversation. And this is very instructive for us, right? We, we need a marketplace ministry, don't we? That's where people are. We can't leave evangelism to church events inside a church building. Nor should we reserve it for the trained clergy only. It's for every Christian. And most unbelievers today have no interest in showing up to my church on a Sunday. And if they do, it's because someone invited them and brought them outside the church building. That's why they're there. It used to be if you could offer a really good program and a really good sort of thing, people would come. But I think these days are, these days are fading and they're gone in some places. I love the movie Field of Dreams, but it's a terrible evangelism strategy. If you build it, they will come. No, they won't. You have to engage them in the marketplaces, in the workplaces, in the neighborhoods, in the academy, in the arts, in the, in, in the gym. 
in your networks. Why? Because Christianity is not in the center of our culture anymore. It's on the margins. It's on the fringes. And if we're going the way of England, as we typically do on these sorts of things, it's going to get worse. Studies show right now that 85 million people in America have no intention of attending a church service. In the UK, it's 40 million, and that's 70% of the population. In the United States, the number of adults who do not attend church services has nearly doubled since 1991. And you guys have heard of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, people who have no no religious affiliation. 22% of the country is what the Pew study reported. So what are we to do in this secularized world? Well, we need an everyday church with an everyday mission. We must engage people humbly, boldly, intelligently. We need to learn conversational skills, get off of our phones and start talking to people. Just read through the Gospels and see how often Jesus uses questions to engage people. And, and let's, let's be about that sort, of, that sort of work, as Paul does it here in the marketplace. So that's what he does. He goes into the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. He's just out and about. And he's using, it seems, the Socratic method in Socrates' city. Asking questions, dialoguing, engaging. Oftentimes people are afraid of evangelism because they th- think they don't have enough answers. And what I like to say is you just need to be armed with some good questions. Just ask some good questions to people. Provoke them to thought. Good evangelism is like putting a rock in someone's shoe. Gives them something to think about the rest of the day. Maybe even aggravates them a little bit. Well, the the next group he engages in the marketplace are the skeptics, these, these philosophers. Notice what they say about Paul. They call him a babbler. It says, what does this babbler have to say? Now, this word babbler meant seed picker. It was used of various seed-eating birds. They're saying Paul's like a bird. He just sort of plucks up an idea here and there, but he has no coherent worldview. These philosophers valued a coherent worldview, but they don't understand the Apostle Paul. That's indicated by the fact that verse 18 says that they think Paul is preaching about more than one God. He seems to be a preacher of foreign, notice it in the plural, deities divinities because he was preaching jesus and the resurrection which seems to mean that they think the resurrection is an actual deity anastasis often in greek thought the deities bore uh, abstract qualities like fate and mercy and so on so they don't understand paul and so because of that they take him to the areopagus that's that hill where they would often have long speeches and 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 discussions and they say, we want to hear what these, these things mean. Now, two groups of people are mentioned uh, there in verse 18, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. I might just paraphrase Polhill to give you a little background on the Epicureans. They believe that the body and even the soul were comprised of fine matter, which dissolves after death. They were materialists. They denied divine providence. They considered a person wise who neither feared divine judgment nor eternal reward. Keep these things in mind as we look at Paul's speech because the the, the mention of them is not incidental. Paul is actually going to address many of their underlying convictions. The best way to imitate the gods for the Epicureans was to enjoy pleasure, not gross idolatry, but still they were hedonist in a sense. So you only live once. If it feels good, do it. We can understand that sort of thinking, can't we? They pursued this sort of detached and tranquil life apart from pain in the pursuit of pleasure. That's how they thought the gods lived. 
Now, the Stoics, on the other hand, were not materialists. They were pantheists. They thought a divine principle was immersed in all of nature, including human beings. They confused God with the world's soul. And a wise person for them recognizes his connection with everything else in the universe, cultivating an attitude of self-sufficient contentment regardless of circumstances. You're a Stoic. You live with a stiff upper lip, responding calmly to everything. And they viewed history, and this is important in Paul's speech, as an unending cycle of order followed by chaos, followed by order. And so history was not moving somewhere. And so this is the group now that Paul engages. And they take him to this Areopagus. And now as you look at verses 22 and following, Paul gives this formal address to them. Now I think as many commentators have pointed out, this speech is really just an outline that these speeches at the Areopagus often took two to three hours. And so what we have is, is the outline. And I think if you read the rest of Paul, you could fill in his outline of what he would have, he would have put in there. And this is not a sermon. We should not confuse Paul at Mars Hill with, with a Sunday corporate gathering. This is in the marketplace. This is more like being, uh, giving a speech at, at a college university or, or something to that effect. He, he's out. There, there is no song before he speaks. <laughs> He leadeth me was not on the, the order of worship uh, here at the Areopagus. This is, this is a pagan marketplace setting. And it's more like, you're, you're, you're next, let's hear from this guy. And so here is the outline that Paul basically does. And I love what he does, which is basically show the whole story of the Bible. He moves from God as creator to final judgment. And it's just wonderful. And it's so necessary for the audience he's addressing and we need to learn from it. Verse 22, Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, men of Athens, notice this, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. So Paul is observing things. His head is not in the sand. He, he's aware of his context. For as I pass along, I observed another word that notes he's paying attention. He notices what people are thinking and saying and feeling, worshiping. I found objects of your worship. I even found one altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So in the synagogue, he would start with maybe Abraham. At Mars Hill, he starts with an inscription. In every case, he ends with the resurrection. And he calls for repentance. And so he starts with that. Why don't I just start here, guys? Let me tell you about the God who's not unknowable, who's actually knowable. And so he begins, verse 24, with creation. He says in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it. Right there, that flew in the face of Greek philosophers and people because they believed there was a God over this and a God over that and a God over this. And no, God made literally everything. Even though everything today says made in China. <laughs> you can even buy an American flag that's made in China. Everything in this world has a stamp on it, made by God. He made it. That's where he begins with creation. And he says that you can't confine the creator to a temple, can you? Being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man. As he's looking from Mars Hill to the Acropolis at the Parthenon and that massive statue of Athena, you can't cage up the creator. You can't confine him to a building. Bob Inc. said, in an absolute sense, there is nothing that is atheistic. The, the world is a theater of God's glory. You can't confine him to a temple. One persecuted Christian 
said after the threat of having his congregation's local church building destroyed, quote, you can pull down our steeples, but you can't pull down the stars. Yeah, that's where Paul starts. That's a really good start. We'll see if his ending is any good. Good introduction, Paul. We give him an A, don't we, uh, as, we as we look at it. Verse 25, he goes on to, to describe that God is the sustainer of life. Not only did he create it, but again, in contrast to much Greek thought and these philosophers thought, he is, he is involved in his creation, right? So he says in 25, he's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. That's a, that's a humbling word, isn't it? That he doesn't need us. We need him. He chooses to use us because he loves us. He doesn't have to have us. He doesn't need anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You remember on another hill when Elijah was there with the prophets of, uh, the prophets of Baal and he says as they were praying for six hours, you know, answer us, Elijah engages in a little holy mockery, doesn't he? And maybe your God went on a journey. Maybe your God went to the bathroom. And that was very common for those gods to, to actually do things that humans do. Well, our God is never on a journey. He's never asleep. He needs no food. He needs no air. He's entirely self-sufficient. And he is sustaining everything, including our heartbeat at this moment. He has created it. The macro things, the micro things. He sustains it. The macro things, the micro things. What a God we have. 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind. So this creator has created mankind, the pinnacle of creation. And it's from one man he's made every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. So diversity is God's idea. It's not our idea. You have a problem with diversity, you have a problem with God. From one man he made every nation of mankind. We should celebrate God's glorious design of diversity. Marvel at it. He determined their allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. So both the times and the boundaries, referring to his sovereignty over history and geography. Creator, sustainer, ruler of nations. Fourth, he says God is knowable. His speech goes on, and this is very important, that they should seek God. So God has created us that we may seek him, but Paul hints here at the doctrine of sin because he says this God that we should be seeking he says, he's created us that we may seek him and perhaps feel our way toward him. Well, why, why can't we, why, why are we having this problem with, with knowing him? Well, again, we know from the rest of scripture that something has happened. Creation, fall. And now we're, we're groping. One commentator says that the word used here for reach out or feel uh, is a word it, that the Greek poet Homer used in a well-known story of the Cyclops, where the giant one-eyed Cyclops captured Odysseus and his men but Odysseus got the Cyclops drunk and blinded him with a sharp stake Odysseus wanted to get his men out of the cave but it was difficult because the Cyclops was groping around or feeling for the men and what we have to have is divine grace to open up our eyes to see the gospel we're feeling there, there's a sense in creation in our conscience of the reality of God the existence of God but we need we need to see and how do people see? They see by the Holy Spirit. They see as the gospel is preached to them, which Paul is doing here. And some of them will believe at the end of this story. 
Right now they can't see, but God in his grace opens up eyes and we see. We're not groping and feeling anywhere anymore. And praise God. He says that God is the father of humanity. Verse 28 and 9, here Paul quotes a, a couple of poets, a Christian poet, in him we live and move and have our being. And then another poet who said we are indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So since we are made in God's image, it would be utterly folly to worship anything other than God. Don't worship a created thing. Worship creator God. Well, verses 30 and 31, here's Paul's ending. We'll see how his conclusion goes. Sometimes it's hard to end a sermon, isn't it? I might find it hard to end this one, but it, some people have endings that are like on the show Lost. They don't know how to end it, so they just throw some stuff together and hope you guys enjoy. Uh, Paul, Paul ends it well, doesn't he? Creation, final judgment. That's the flow. The times of ignorance God overlooked. It doesn't mean God ignored human rebellion. It means that in his mercy, he doesn't, didn't visit humanity with the judgment they deserved. But now, notice that. Now, there has been a decisive turning point in redemptive history. Something has happened, namely, Christ has come, risen, ascended. Now, he commands all people everywhere to repent. You see, now Paul gets out of the realm of philosophy into human responsibility. You guys have tracked with me, you've tracked with me, he says, and now judgment is coming. You can be assured of this judgment because, verse 31, God has raised him from the dead, giving us assurance that he is the rightful judge. So he goes creation through the work of Christ, resurrection, final judgment. I love how he says, verse 31, he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, a particular man. We come from this one man, as he said, uh, where was it in, in verse uh, 20? Six, we, we, every nation came from this one man and the only hope is for us who are in Adam to put our faith in this other man, the man Christ Jesus. The only mediator between man and God. And if you repent, he's not your judge, he's your savior. So repentance is good news. It's good news. Well, let me just draw some final applications that I've made along the way, but I'll gather them up here for us. Four quick reflections on, on this great narrative, and then I'll read verses 32 and 34. Consider Paul's, number one, evangelistic consistency. I'm always challenged by this story because, as I said, Paul, Paul could just chill if he wanted to. I mean, he's been run out of town in the previous town. But he's not eating falafels in Athens. That's not what we read about. He's having a gyro and walking around. He's, he may be eating a falafel. I don't know. But, but one thing that's on his mind... Is people. I would like to have a euro today. Actually, it sounds really good at Charlie's, doesn't it? Um, I digress. Um, Paul did that too, by the way. Um, now, notice not only is consistency, because we need to be consistent. That's my point. And perhaps you have lost your evangelistic consistency. Let this be, let this be a, a time of recommitment in your own heart. I think the, the reason why, by the way, Paul is so consistent is because of what he sees and what he feels. That's what makes him always about the gospel. Secondly, notice his comprehensiveness. Not only his consistency, but his comprehensiveness. 
As I mentioned, Paul goes from creation to the end. He does, he does not assume people know anything. And we have got to learn how to do this really well. His, his presentation of the gospel does not begin with, you're a sinner. It begins with God as creator. And then Imago Dei. And then fall. And then Christ. His work and judgment. It's, it's a beautiful picture, I think, of how you might engage intellectuals, educated people who are biblically illiterate. Thirdly, consider his contextualization. His consistency, his comprehensiveness, his contextualization. I pointed that out as he sees things, as he perceives things, as he observes these inscriptions. He wisely does contextualization. Contextualization means you find a point of contact and then bring a point of conflict with people. You connect with them, and then you preach the gospel to them. And we all know this. You, you talk to a 90-year-old differently than a teenager. But you're presenting the same gospel. Coaches know this. Parents know this. You don't change your principles, but you might adapt the way you present things. You're not adjusting the truth. That's not contextualization. It's applying the truth. It's showing the significance of the truth. And underneath that contextualization is wisdom and love. Because that's why we do it. We do it out of love. Now, in this case, Paul makes contact by quoting their poets. Today, I would argue that most teenagers are discipled by Katy Perry and Pink, and Lady Gaga. They're not reading Nietzsche and Sartre. They're listening to music. And I'm not suggesting you immerse yourself into these worlds. I don't think Paul, for contextualization, Paul was not immersing himself in three hours of Netflix every night. But he was aware, and he did know what people were thinking. He did know something of their worldview. An older generation is more discipled by Fox News than the Bible, and others more by MSNBC than the Bible. And it's good to be aware of who you're talking to, and what they're trusting in, and what they're believing, and what their hopes are, and what their fears are. That's a good evangelist. And so you've got to know the Bible well, and you've got to really know people, and you've got to really love them. Now, the conflict is very obvious, isn't it? He presents a different worldview to them. He tells them a final judgment. A lot of Christians are really good at making contact with unbelievers, but they don't bring the point of conflict to unbelievers. And so let's, let's learn. Let's ask for grace. Jesus addressed Nicodemus differently than the woman at the well. Back-to-back -back chapters. There was never a canned approach. I like what Stott says. This is in Paul's speech in Lystra, which is a shorter version, a very similar sort of setting. He says, wherever we begin, we shall end with Jesus Christ, who is himself the good news and who alone can fulfill all human aspirations. Wherever we start on that point of contact, that's where we take people, right? My final point, his courage. To be a good evangelist, you need to be consistent. I think you need to be comprehensive, know the whole story of the Bible. You need to do wise contextualization and you need courage. Compassionate courage is what Paul puts on display. It took courage for Paul to preach the exclusivity of Jesus, the fact that Jesus rose bodily, and the fact that there was going to be a judgment. What was the response? Well, notice in verse 32 to 34, as I end, it's the same response we're going to get as we go do this. Paul's, Paul's faithful. He presents the the gospel story, and it says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. That's what we're going to get a lot. 
Some will mock us. So just be prepared for it. Some of you know that very well. Others said, we will hear you again about this. We, we, need, some, we need another speech, Paul. We need to go have another lunch. We need to hear you again. And we, sh- we have to be patient with people, don't we? We have to be patient with them. So some mocked. Some said, I'll consider it. I need to hear more. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Some believed. Among whom were Dionysius, the Arapagite, and a woman named Damari, and others with them. And it's just striking to me how uh, some say that Paul, Paul was very unsuccessful in Athens. Like so, Several commentators have said that. I wish I could fail as well as Paul. Don't you? Hey, you just go out and about and you preach and some people believe. That'd be, that's awesome. Praise the Lord for that. So from this great passage, we learn what we should see. The world is beautiful and it's broken. What we should feel a longing for Jesus Christ to be worshipped, where he's not worshipped. Where we should go, everywhere. Religious places, irreligious places. And what we should say, the true story of the whole world, culminating in the reign of King Jesus. May God grant us grace to do that. Father, would you apply your word to our hearts? Grateful that someone brought the gospel to us. I pray you would make us courageous, you'd make us wise. You would make us biblical. You would make us consistent. Even this day, we pray in Jesus' good name. Everyone said, amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, We hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for his glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.